There was a letter released this morning by the White House that reads like an emotional breakup letter. The problem is it has global ramifications. Yes, it does. What fun. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in. From the Pacifica with Radio you. in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets for your listening pleasure on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, not to mention all fine podcast download sites like Bradblog.com and whatever may be your favorite. Blanketing planet Earth, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, it has been a disturbing week for the First Amendment and this uh, presidential administration's regard for it, I guess, is one way to put it, and uh, one that I think underscores the case that I've made for Many years that those calling themselves constitutional conservatives are really anything but. You know, I've been trying for so many years, Desi Doyen, you you have witnessed this <laughs> so many years to convince media outlets, corporate and independent alike, by the way, to stop referring to Republicans as conservatives. Right. And constitutionalists. Yeah. When they are not. It's a, you know, it's a branding phrase that that plays well, but they are anything but constitutionalists, especially, uh, you know, as underscored again this week in several cases this week. One is a ruling against the president of the United States in federal court for violating the First Amendment free speech rights of citizens and media, which our guest attorney, uh, uh, constitutional attorney, Joshua A. Douglas will join us here to discuss shortly. And the blatant violation of freedom of the press carried out by the EPA this week, including the use of physical force against an AP journalist trying to cover uh, a public forum at the EPA. 
We will discuss that, among uh, many other things, in our latest Green News report, by the way, coming up with Desi Doyen later in the show. Uh, Ridiculously (laughs) jam-packed Green News report, I should say. It's amazing how much we were able to cram into a tight six minutes there. Uh, How do we do it? I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, But it is our last one before the Memorial Day holiday break, so we got a lot to get in. Um, But also, if time allows, later on the show, zombies. Ooh. So, yeah, you can look forward to that, at least. Who doesn't like zombies? Who doesn't? So we'll lighten things up at some point here today, maybe. But first, um, we start here in a dramatic diplomatic turn. As AP describes it, President Donald Trump on Thursday called off next month's planned summit with North Korea's Kim Jong-un, calling the cancellation, quote, a tremendous setback. For peace and stressing that the U.S. military was ready to respond to any, quote, foolish or reckless acts by the North. Of course, Trump is the one who actually canceled it. He's actually the one who caused this particular tremendous setback. So if it's a tremendous setback for peace, uh, guess who's setting it back? As the New York Times reports it, President Trump, citing a flurry of hostile statements from North Korea, pulled out of a highly anticipated summit meeting with Kim Jong-un on Thursday, telling the North Korean leader, quote, this missed opportunity is a truly sad moment in history. But that sad moment in history, of course, was Donald Trump's own making. Trump announced his decision to cancel this summit in a letter to Kim that was released by the White House on Thursday morning, which apparently was not even discussed with our allies, the South Koreans first. South Korea uh, President Moon Jae-in said that he was baffled and very regretful that Donald Trump had canceled this planned meeting. And uh, apparently the, it says the South has had no advance notice of the cancellation, according to ABC News. Well, that's some brilliant diplomacy going on there. While I have uh, long been dubious that this summit, I think I'm on record here being uh, dubious that this summit would actually ever happen. I guess this uh, really weird letter now bears that out. I'll read it in a moment. But uh, here was the president today at the White House giving uh, just part of a a statement here uh, to reporters shortly after the letter was released to the public. Based on the recent statement of North Korea, I have decided to terminate the planned summit in Singapore on June 12th. I believe that this is a tremendous setback for North Korea and, indeed, a setback for the world. How about for you? Hopefully positive things will be taking place with respect to the future of North Korea. But if they don't, we are more ready than we have ever been before. A lot of things can happen, including the fact that perhaps, and would wait, it's possible that the existing summit could take place or a summit at some later date. Nobody should be anxious. We have to get it right. Uh, in this uh, letter, this needy letter, like that kind of needy statement there, we might not cancel it. We might like to have it after all. In this uh, letter, which appears to have been written or at least drafted or dictated by Trump himself, 
because uh, it does not sound like usual diplomatic language. No, it sounds like Trump. Yeah, he he cited, quote, tremendous anger and open hostility in a recent statement by the North. A North Korean official um, uh, apparently over the past 24 hours or so had referred to uh, Vice President Pence as a, quote, political dummy. After the vice president said that Kim could meet the same fate as Libya's leader, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi, if he did not make a deal with the United States. Now, by the way, when they say use the word political dummy, it's not clear to me that he was saying he was dumb or if he was saying a dummy like a ventriloquist dummy because he was Trump Pence was basically echoing exactly the same thing that Trump himself had said just last week as yeah. we played for you on the show a couple of days ago concerning the. That comment about Libya moment, North Korean officials were infuriated after Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton, had first floated the um, the voluntary disarmament of of Libya back in 2003 as a precedent for North Korea. He described it as the Libya model from 2003-2004. But what the North Koreans seemed to have heard and then Trump brilliantly amplified over and over and over again uh, as the Libya model was this gruesome, gruesome fate that Gaddafi finally faced in 2011 when Libyan rebels, aided by a a NATO bombing campaign, had killed Gaddafi uh, during the Arab Spring uprising in, uh, in 2011. And it appeared, as I noted, Uh, When we played Trump's comments the other day that he had no idea what his own national security advisor Bolton was actually referring to as the Libya moment. The Libya model. The Libya model. I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah. When when Libya had actually disarmed itself of all of its chemical, biological and nuclear weapons back in 2003 after we had attacked Iraq. But. So, you know, I don't know if Donald Trump decided, oh, I don't know enough about this topic. I got to find an excuse to get out of it or whatever. But this letter is kind of amazing. Let me read it here. It's just about it's just three paragraphs. Um, It's addressed to His Excellency Kim Jong Un, chairman of the State Affairs Commission of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Notice he does not call him supreme leader as uh, apparently the White House did when they printed this, when they minted this commemorative coin. Oh, yeah. Did you see those? Yeah. Those were silly. It's like they, they, they minted these government coins that are called challenge coins. They're used in the military but have proliferated through other agencies in the Trump administration because they seem to like that sort of thing. It's amazing that they minted this coin before anything actually and it happened. And puts, it puts the president, puts the uh, president of the United States on par with the supreme leader, Kim Jong-un, as uh, as it is on this coin. In any event, uh, dear Mr. Chairman, the letter reads, we greatly appreciate your time, patience, and effort with respect to our recent negotiations and discussions relative to a summit long sought by both parties, which was scheduled to take place on June 12 in Singapore. Now, when he says long sought, uh, it was just about a month or so ago that Donald Trump suddenly decided to accept this meeting that has been long sought by North Korea. 
Um, but most presidents have wisely avoided such meetings, at least until the details could be worked out. But that's not for Donald Trump. Details are not. He's not a details guy. <laughs> no, he's not. Uh, he goes on to write, we were informed that the meeting was requested by North Korea, but that to us is totally irrelevant. I was very much looking forward to being there with you. Sadly, based on the tremendous anger and open hostility displayed by your most recent statement, I feel it is inappropriate at this time to have this long-planned meeting. Therefore, please let this letter serve to represent that the Singapore summit, for the good of both parties, but to the detriment of the world, will not take place. You talk about your nuclear capabilities, but ours is so massive and powerful that I pray to God they will never have to be used. I felt a wonderful dialogue was building up between you and me. And ultimately, it is only that dialogue that matters. Someday I look very forward to meeting you. In the meantime, I want to thank you for the release of the hostages who are now home with their families. That was a beautiful gesture and was very much appreciated. If you change your mind having to do with this most important summit, no, change your mind. He's the guy who decided to cancel it. Donald Trump did. If you change your mind having uh, to do with this most important summit, please do not hesitate to call me or write. The world, and North Korea in particular, has lost a great opportunity for lasting peace and great prosperity and wealth. This missed opportunity is a truly sad moment in history. Donald J. Trump, President of the United States of America. It does sound like a breakup letter, doesn't yeah, it? Actually, I mean it sounds like a response to a breakup letter. That right. It's, this is what the guy says to you after you say, gosh, no thanks, I don't think this is going to work. And then say, I thought we had a great connection. Not just guys, I mean anybody. Yeah, <laughs> no, it, it, it does. And it sort of sounds like he's trying to make it sort of sound like it was his choice, but it was the other guy's choice. It's... The abrupt cancellation of this uh, June 12 meeting uh, withdraws the U.S. for now from an unprecedented summit that had offered the prospect of a historic nuclear peace treaty or an epic diplomatic failure, which I suspect is where we were all headed uh, and may still be. Uh, no sitting president, as AP notes, has ever met with a North Korean leader. The New York Times says in response, the uh, North's vice foreign minister, Cho Son Hui, said, quote, we will neither beg the U.S. for dialogue nor take the trouble to persuade them if they don't want to sit together with us. She said it was up to Washington whether, quote, the U.S. will meet us at a meeting room or encounter us at nuclear to nuclear showdown. Mm. So it now seems we are back where we started in this mess. Um, for Mr. Trump, who never tires of extolling his dealmaker's skills, says the Times, the abrupt cancellation also raises questions about how he handled Kim after threatening the North with fire and fury and ridiculing him as little rocket man. Trump accepted the North Korean leader's invitation to meet on the spot when South Korean officials conveyed it in March. Trump's decision... They report caught his entire national security team off guard at the time. Remember, it is unclear if the North even wanted this meeting in the first place, if they actually sent the invite. It happened after uh, a South Korean official had come to the White House to brief uh, to brief the White House on meetings that they, that they had had with Kim. And Trump wasn't even scheduled to meet with these diplomats. But when he heard that they were there at the White House, he said, oh, come on in. 
to, to the Oval Office. Tell me what happened. And they said that uh, they told him that Kim had expressed an interest in meeting face to face. And Trump, boom, accepted right there on the spot. Accepted an invitation that may never have actually been sent. You, you recall he sent the South Korean diplomats out onto the driveway of the White House in the middle of the night. Remember that well, in the sir, dark? It was this, very dramatic. Made for great TV. Uh, it was a bizarre press event that mm-hmm. was, you know, usually something that momentous. You would think uh, the White House, the president himself would want to crow about or the uh, secretary of state would announce. But he said, go out there and tell the press that I'm going to meet with Kim Jong Un. It was weeks thereafter before the North even suggested that they would be willing to carry out this meeting face to face. White House said we're going to do it in May. Then it was scheduled for June. Now, who knows if it's ever going to happen again? Uh, Kelly Magsiman, uh, former White House and Department of State official, now uh, vice president at the Center for American Progress, National Security and International Policy Center, says, I realize that we are now that we now all accept this as normal. But the Trump national security process is a total dumpster fire. She says, I'm not trying to be funny. It's absolutely terrifying how big national security decisions are made on a whim or out of spite. Josh Marshall's take at uh, Talking Points memo seems uh, on the money. He writes, the words resonate in this letter with a, a genuine hurt and anguish mixed with moments of menace and still hope for the future. It reads needy. It's like a letter you write to a romantic partner who has abandoned you without saying so. You write, hurt, finalizing what is already clear. He says this is no way to conduct diplomacy, certainly not when nuclear weapons are at the center of it. There's a reason that diplomats do these things the way they do. It can be good to have a head of state to push past some formalities, but the U.S. never should have agreed to this summit, he says. It was clear to anyone who was really listening and who knows North Korea's history that there was little reason to think the North Koreans were seriously considering giving up their nuclear deterrent. Why would they? They've made immense sacrifices to achieve it, and they see it quite reasonably as a guarantee that they will never face violent regime change from the U.S. or South Korea. Fundamentally, says uh, Marshall, this was a massive goof by the president that ended up blowing up in his face. It's not clear that we're in a worse place now than we were before the meeting was announced, but we may soon be. It is notable that the White House released this letter before informing the North Koreans of the decision, the North or the South, for that matter. He says that was a bad, dangerous mistake. It seems based on their initial response that Trump had not consulted extensively and perhaps not at all with South Korea either. Their first response, as reported uh, by the Yonhap News Agency, was that the president of South Korea would convene his top officials and was, quote, trying to figure out what President Trump's intention is and the exact meaning of it. So he did not know he was not informed. Uh, Marshall goes on to say, we often discuss how President Trump seems to see diplomacy in highly personal terms. Things depend on how he and and the other man or woman get along personally. There's his military, his diplomats, his cabinet secretaries. 
He has little sense that the U.S. and other states may have a foundational interest that trumps any personal chemistry between the leaders. This, le- uh, this letter, he says, uh, suggests as much, suggests that personal investment, Trump's personal investment is quite real here. He seems truly hurt and angry, using phrases like, a wonderful dialogue was building up between you and me. It was a beautiful gesture. Please do not hesitate to call me or write. He says it's not good to have a president who is this emotionally needy or one that conducts dangerous foreign policy on whims and ignorance. The entire thing is a ridiculous and embarrassing chapter in our history. I would say add it to the list. Yeah. One that is getting longer by the day, I'm afraid. Uh, But by the way, let's just hope that this doesn't literally blow up in all of our faces. That's what I thought of when I read that from Josh. All right. um, Well, hey, you know what? Let's lighten things up a bit. A federal court this week found the president of the United States in blatant violation of the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment free speech protections. Yes, in this era of Trump, that would count as lightening things up. We're joined next for that levity by constitutional attorney Joshua A. Douglas as the fun continues next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Donald Trump and Scott Pruitt's Environmental Protection Agency blocked major media outlets, including AP and CNN, from covering a major two-day public water contamination forum at the EPA. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that in our Green News report coming up shortly. Uh, They reportedly physically removed one of the AP reporters from the building, by the way. Also this week, in other anti-constitutional, anti-First Amendment, anti-free speech, anti-freedom of the press news out of this particular administration, which pretends to be constitutionally conservative, a federal judge ruled that public officials, in this case the President of the United States, may not block members of the public, including members of the media, who were also blocked from viewing and participating in discussion on Donald Trump's infamous Twitter account. Now, as much as we joke about the incompetency of this administration, uh, frankly, it's blatant disregard for very basic constitutional premises like the 
the First Amendment's right to freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and the right to petition the government should be chilling to everyone, perhaps most so to those who consider themselves these so-called constitutional conservatives who aren't really uh, that concerned about all of this, it seems. I, too, by the way, have been blocked on Twitter after simply and politely correcting a public official. That would be Alabama Secretary, uh, Secretary of State John Merrill, who still blocks me today, even after a federal court this week ruled that public officials are in violation of the Constitution when they do that. Secretary Merrill blocked me for little more than politely correcting inaccurate information that he was giving to the public about the state's computerized paper ballot tabulation systems. That, of course, makes it more difficult for me to do my job as a journalist in covering Secretary of State Merrill. As you probably know, we cover elections and voting rights quite a bit on this show. And in fact, Alabama has its crucial midterm primary elections coming up on June 5th in about a week and a half from now. Since Merrill uses his Twitter account for public announcements and to talk with the public, I will, by and large, be unable to do my job in that regard unless Merrill takes this week's uh, very clear ruling, I think, by a federal judge in New York against Donald Trump as seriously as a public official should. But Republicans have become quite adept of late at ignoring the federal court system entirely, it seems. The Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach has now been cited twice for contempt of federal court. And you'll recall that Donald Trump pardoned Arizona Sheriff Joe Arpaio for repeatedly ignoring federal court orders. After the first hearing in the federal case uh, filed by the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University and seven citizens against the president of the United States after they were blocked on Twitter a few months back, we were joined by one of the plaintiffs in that case, legal journalist Rebecca Pilar Buckwalter Poza. She wrote gleefully on Wednesday after the ruling in the case in New York that, quote, public officials are relying on social media more and more to communicate to constituents. As that shift accelerates, it's imperative that courts recognize that the First Amendment protects against viewpoint discrimination in digital public forums like the real Donald Trump Twitter account just as it does in more traditional town halls. An official's Twitter account, she writes, is often the central forum for direct political debate with and among constituents, a tenet of democracy. Here to discuss the federal court ruling against the president of the United States this week and what may come next is someone else who, like me, was also blocked on Twitter by the Alabama Secretary of State, John H. Merrill, that would be Professor Joshua A. Douglas. He teaches and researches election law, voting rights, constitutional law, and judicial decision-making at the University of Kentucky College of Law. He's published many of the nation's top legal, published in many of the nation's top legal journals and has contributed to the New York Times, USA Today, CNN, Reuters, Washington Post, and many others. He's also co-editor of the book Election Law Stories. Professor Douglas, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks for having me. All right, so um, <clears throat> thank you for joining us. What was at issue in this uh, in this case against the President of the United States in New York, and what did the U.S. District Court Judge uh, Naomi Rice Buckwald ultimately find in her ruling this week? 
Well, it's really a core First Amendment issue. That is, can the president, as a public official, block someone from interacting with him on Twitter? And so part of that decision comes down to what is Twitter uh, for First Amendment purposes when it comes to a government official's use of the forum. Um, and what the, the court ruled was that Twitter is what's known as a designated public forum. And without getting into the, the sort of legalese uh, of the weeds here, what it essentially means is that when someone like Donald Trump uh, is acting in his governmental capacity to use Twitter as one of the things he's doing as president, uh, in disseminating information, interacting with people, he can't block some people from doing so, because that essentially limits those individuals' free speech rights. So this is really a decision that upholds the First Amendment's core belief of free speech by saying that when a government official stops someone from speaking in a media that is used for governmental interaction, mm -hmm. that violates the First Amendment. Now, the Justice Department lawyers... And yes, apparently we are paying to defend the uh, the president in this, this dumb case, if you ask me. I mean, it's not a dumb case, but what he's doing, I think, is really dumb. And the fact that we have to, taxpayers have to defend him is kind of outrageous. Uh, the DOJ argued that it was Trump's prerogative, that he could block followers on Twitter. It was no different uh, than the president deciding uh, in a room full of people not to listen to someone. But the judge saw that differently? Yeah, you know, uh, in, in, terms, and in terms of whether it's a dumb case, I mean, you know, in some ways it is, right, and even the judge recognized that the harm here to these individual plaintiffs wasn't all that great in the grand scheme of things, mm -hmm. but the First Amendment doesn't care about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it is an important case, and uh, to demonstrate the limits of what the government official can do. And in terms of uh, the government's defense here, you know, one of the things they were saying was that the president, this is the president's way of not listening, uh, and also that uh, requiring the president to see people's replies to his tweets violates his own First Amendment free speech rights. The court didn't buy that, essentially because uh, blocking someone still limits their speech. And so an individual speech outweighs the president's desire not to listen in this particular forum. Once he's opened the forum up to governmental communications in which anyone can respond, then you can't selectively choose who you're not going to listen to based on that person's own, comment, own commentary. So this is also what's known as viewpoint discrimination. Mm -hmm. right? The government, in this case the president, is discriminating against someone based on what they've said based on their political viewpoints. And you can't do that under the First Amendment. And and what was uh, what the judge also noted as uh, Rebecca Buckwalter, Buckwalter Poza, uh, the legal journalist who joined us, uh, the plaintiff in this, one of the plaintiffs in the case who joined us on the show a few months back, uh, you know, the judge noted that uh, the president or any public official still has the right to mute these people. In other words, he doesn't have to see what they write uh, but he can, uh, instead of blocking them, he can just mute them so he doesn't see what they say, but they still get to see what he says, and they can report about it if they're a reporter. Uh, they can respond to it. Other people can see the response. Um, so, you know, it was clear that blocking is sort of an extreme measure here, it seems, and it seems the judge figured that out. But uh, Rebecca uh 
Buckwalter said that uh, she was blocked after she had tweeted in response to Trump, who was tweeting about his election. Her comment was simply, quote, to be fair, Russia won it for you. That's what she said that earned her uh, being blocked by the president of the United States. And that, by the way, is something which former CIA director James Clapper also argued this week that Russia won the election for Trump. Uh, but as I understand it, uh, the judge in this case determined that Trump could not block political opponents. So, uh, Joshua Douglas, what did you say that got you blocked by the Alabama Secretary of State, John Merrill, that uh, I guess makes you his political opponent? I told him that blocking people on Twitter, uh, blocking his own constituents on Twitter, could violate the First Amendment, and that there were free speech concerns when he uh, chose to, to block someone who was trying to interact with him. So actually, I didn't even say anything about him politically or uh, any of the policies he was promoting or talking about. I simply weighed in as a constitutional scholar to say, you may not want to be blocking people because that uh, a court could very well find that violates the First Amendment. And in my case, it seems obvious, and in my case, I had said to, uh, to Merrill, I had corrected him very politely, uh, you know, when he was making certain claims about the type of voting systems that he uses in uh, in Alabama that were just he was just wrong about the argument that he was making. I tried to be nice about it. That got me blocked. So does uh, Judge Buckwald's uh, ruling then up in uh, the federal court in New York, would that apply to people like you or me who I don't think could be considered political opponents of, of uh, the secretary? Well, the ruling itself, by itself, doesn't explicitly apply because it only applies to the president and that's who the defendant was. But you have to have another plaintiff bring a case in Alabama challenging Merrill's blocking uh, and, and use the uh, federal district court's case this week as uh, extremely persuasive authority. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're a political opponent or not. The ruling seems to say that you can't block someone based on the content of their speech, no matter what it is that they're saying. So... It's not like you have to have a definition of someone being a political opponent. It's simply that you can't pick and choose who you're going to allow to interact with you in the replies uh, to tweets and, and who, who can see the tweets. So I think it's a, it's a very persuasive uh, decision um, out, of, out of this court in, involving Donald Trump. Um, you'd have to have another plaintiff. You'd have to have a case in Alabama, and a judge in Alabama agree. And judges might disagree. You know, there's a case out of, out of where I'm from, Kentucky, mm-hmm. where the district court upheld the governor's decision to block some of his constituents. I personally think that that decision was wrong, um, but, you know, it, it does go the other way. The judge apparently uh, stopped short in her uh, written decision of ordering Trump to stop the practice of blocking critics. Uh, writing that, quote, a declaratory, uh, a declaratory judgment should be sufficient as no government, no government official, including the president, is above the law. And she wrote all government officials are presumed to follow the law as has been declared. But I don't know that that will be enough. Uh, A spokesman for the DOJ representing Trump here uh, said in an email that, quote, we respectfully disagree with the court's decision and are considering our next steps. So what happens at this point if uh, Trump does not unblock those folks? Well, certainly they'll probably appeal. Um, But let's just go down the line and assume they exhaust their appeals and, and keep losing. At some point, he's going to have to comply, or a court 
will then order, issue an injunction and order uh, Trump to, to not block these individuals. Um, so I think what the court is doing now is sort of letting the president comply without uh, having the force of a, a formal compulsion. But, you know, if it comes to it, that, that's what will happen. And uh, if he doesn't follow it, then he's held in contempt the way uh, Joe Arpaio and Chris Kobach and so on and so forth have been? Exactly. Yep, that's exactly right. Can uh, he... So, you know, the, the court would have to find its mechanism to uh, ensure compliance with the, with the court orders. Can he pardon himself, Professor? That's a fascinating question that scholars are split on. Um, I have not personally studied the issue well enough to opine on it, but I do know that it is a very interesting question that I don't think there's a clear answer and one it, way or the other. And it would be very interesting if he sort of pushes his luck in this particular case and then tries to pardon himself for this as sort of a practice run to see what the response would be. If he, you know, for some reason, let's say something else comes up in the future that he may need to pardon himself for, uh, that would be interesting. Uh, for uh, Secretary of State Merrill's part here, uh, Joshua, I don't know if you've checked your Twitter account lately. I checked it uh, shortly before going on air here. I was still blocked by the Secretary of State, as we are just a uh, even after this court ruling and just over a week out from this uh, June 5th uh, the primary coming up in Alabama. I uh, sent a note, a query to the uh, Secretary of State via email, because I can't get to him via Twitter, uh, to ask if he was going to unblock me. I just got this statement right before we go on air here. It says, and I'll read it to you, from Secretary Merrill, I will continue to use my social media forums the way that I have utilized them in the past. They will not be utilized by others. I'm sorry. They will not be utilized by other users to express their political views or promote their agendas. If someone is able to reach me through social media, they are always welcome to contact me at my office at this number or my cell phone at that number. That's the most efficient and preferred way to contact me. Um, how does that response from uh, John Merrill sit with you, Josh? Well, well, besides the poor grammar of the statement, <laughs> um, substantively it doesn't answer what this court uh, in the Donald Trump case found. Uh, and that it doesn't matter whether someone's promoting their own political agenda or not. It's simply the question of whether the uh, individual is being blocked for engaging in free speech. Now, the way around this, of course, is for... Uh, someone to use their Twitter feed solely in their personal capacity. And, and the court in the, the Trump case noted that. You mm -hmm. know, if, if this was his personal account, he wasn't doing any governmental business whatsoever, then he had be, would have the ability to uh, block whoever he wants. Mm -hmm. But once someone like Donald Trump or John Merrill begins to use his Twitter account uh, in a governmental capacity, then he can't pick and choose uh, and, and block someone because he thinks, in his own view, that that person is promoting some sort of political agenda. And that's really what the core of the First Amendment is all about, which is what this court said. And by the way, that was, uh, in this case, in the conversation that I uh, ended up in with him uh, last December, it was he who jumped in with his own account. Uh, and he, I think he does have two, two different accounts, but he uses this one for... Uh, business of the state, uh, he jumped into the conversation. I don't even think I was reaching out to him at the time. So it's it's really bizarre and actually kind of troubling when you look at the statement that he says uh, his his social media forums, as if he owns them, will not be ut utilized by others. 
uh, to express their political views or promote their agendas. I don't think I was promoting an agenda at all or a political view there. Uh, so but that doesn't matter. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, whether you were or not is not really the, the relevant point. The relevant point is, is he block, can he be allowed to block someone because of the content of their speech, no matter what that content is? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the court here says no. How, how can any of this... Any of, you know, the DOJ's response, the president's response, or add uh, John Merrill's response here, how can any of this even possibly be considered constitutionally conservative in any way? This seems to me to be a very cut-and-dry case, particularly since the judge had pointed out that if Trump really didn't want to hear from people, or John Merrill doesn't want to hear from people, he can simply mute them instead of blocking them. Is there... This sort of driven me crazy for years, uh, Joshua, that people, you know, that these Republicans call themselves conservative, constitutional conservatives, when they so blatantly seem to violate a basic tenet of the Constitution. Well, here's, I'll try to make at least one good case for why they think it's constitutionally conservative, and that's that if you think about what the First Amendment means, uh, in their view, it's tradition, it's history, it's what the founders believed. And certainly the founders had, could never even imagine something like Twitter and the ability of masses of people to interact with uh, governmental entities. And so in that case, you might say, looking at the traditional function of the First Amendment, you know, is to protect the press, uh, the traditional press and newspapers. Uh, and so the First Amendment simply shouldn't apply to something like this where the, the, the government is, is using a newfound platform to disseminate their own message. Okay, then. I guess if we uh, ban AR-15s, which were never seen uh, foreseen by the uh, founders, then they would have no problem with that either, because, you know, it's only if we ban muskets that the Constitution would apply under that under that argument that I know you're not making yourself, uh, but you're, uh, you know, trying to offer as how they could possibly come call themselves constitutional conservatives at this point. Uh, Josh, I've got just a minute or two here, but let me flip the page for a second since you're uh, in Kentucky, an election attorney there um, at the University of Kentucky, which is in Lexington, I believe, right? Yep. And and I know you have been uh, following the 2018 midterm primary contest there this past Tuesday in Kentucky. I wanted to get your thoughts very quickly on this huge upset this week in the race for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. House in the state's 6th congressional district where political newcomer and Marine vet Amy McGrath defeated the National Democrats' personally recruited candidate, Lexington Mayor Jim Gray. Uh, She won to run against Republican Congressman Andy Barr this November. Your thoughts on that uh, rather remarkable upset on Tuesday? Well, this is my district, uh, in fact. And, you know, people living in the district, I don't know that they think it's a major upset. I think everyone thought the race would be close. Now, um... You know, back in December, we would say this is a big upset because Jim Gray, the mayor of Lexington, is extremely popular. But I think people here felt the race tightening as the weeks, the months went on mm-hmm. to the primary. Um, and, and also say that, you know, Amy McGrath uh, offered a vision, a positive vision, um, and did a lot of work in the county surrounding Lexington. So, so Jim Gray won the county that Lexington is in, where he's mayor, um, and McGrath won all of the surrounding counties, a little, little more rural, and she mm-hmm. spent a lot of time trying to, to promote a positive message. Um, she's got a remarkable story. 
you know, she has, she has this, uh, some great videos uh, telling, talking about how she wanted to be a fighter pilot, and she wrote to Washington and uh, and senators were back and said, you know, a woman can't be uh, a fighter pilot in mm. the in the military, and she overcame those barriers. So I think she offers a really inspiring story, and that's what a lot of voters are looking for. Is uh, is this race winnable against Barr, as you see it with Amy McGrath? I know the 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 National Democrats, the DCCC, really wanted uh, Gray, who's much more conservative than McGrath. Um, is it now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm not. Yeah. Uh, let me stop you right there, real yeah. quick. I'm not sure Gray is much more conservative. I think policy-wise, they're pretty close, in fact. And I think uh, McGrath might be a little bit more conservative when it comes to the Second Amendment. Mm. Um, so, so they're pretty close. And uh, it's true that the National Democrats were backing Gray. I think largely because they thought that he had a better chance of winning, given his, given his popularity in Lexington. But I did see that the DCCC has now uh, said they're going to put McGrath on their red to blue. Uh, platform and, and open up a lot of money. So I think she's going to get that national backing now, even though she didn't have it in the primary. You know, it was, it was with the exception of the last weekend before the campaign, it was a remarkably civil mm-hmm. uh, uh, race as well. I think the one thing that's going to hurt McGrath is that she just moved back here after being in the military for 20 years, and she's from northern Kentucky, and she moved to this district, and so a lot of people think that she essentially was district shopping, uh, deciding where in Kentucky to move that would give her the best chance to run for office. And so she's going to have to combat some of those, uh, that storyline. Um, is this a winnable race? You know, I think it, it very well could be. This district was represented by Ben Chandler, Democrat, for a handful of years until Andy Barr beat him uh, in 2012. Uh, and so, you know, I think as the 6th District goes, so will the entire United States in terms of the political tenor this November. Constitutional law professor Joshua A. Douglas of the University of Kentucky College of Law, uh, an, an official blockie of uh, Secretary of State John Merrill in Alabama. You can follow him on the Twitters, unless he blocks you, at Joshua A. Douglas. You can also find his uh, his work online at joshuaadouglas.com. Professor, really appreciate you joining us today and uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, uh, let's file a lawsuit against Merrill. What do you say? <laughs> uh, let me have my people talk to your people. Very good. Appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Josh. Talk to you soon. Okay, you know, it, it may seem like a, a trivial case, but as he says, the First Amendment is the First Amendment. It seems maybe trivial when we're dealing with North Korea and you know nuclear weapons and Trump's idiocy there. But if you add this to Scott Pruitt's EPA blocking mainstream reporters, actually shoving one of them out from an event uh, at the EPA this week, this is this is the slippery slope that Republicans pretend we are always on whenever they cite some constitutional infirmity or another somewhere. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and if you add uh, Merrill's statement, John Merrill, Secretary of State, uh, I will continue to use my social media forums the way I have. They will not be utilized by other users to express their political views or promote their agendas. You know, I don't I don't think that John Merrill owns Twitter quite as much <laughs> as he thinks he does. No, especially as this judge has ruled that it's a government account for government business. So, you know, there's an issue there. I, you know, I don't. Yeah. And so I really don't like where all of this is going. Uh, and neither should you, no matter what your political viewpoint is or, or that of Merrill's or Trump's, etc. We need to protect the First Amendment here.
All right. Uh, the Green News Report is next. Uh, but also, so are zombies. Yes, zombies. You've been warned. <laughs> this is the Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. You don't? Oh, I love that one. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, no matter how troubling today's Green News report is, Desi Doyen. Yes. uh, I promise we will lighten things up afterwards with an actual zombie story from Florida. Ah. And it's not even about zombie voters in Florida. Really? So uh, let's get to it right away. Our latest Green News report. This is an agency that cries out for accountability coverage right now. We need to know what the heck is going on. EPA blocks mainstream news outlets from water contamination summit. Texas chemical plant explodes days after EPA rescinds safety rules. Shutting down coal plants delivers immediate benefits for pregnant women and their babies. Plus, the National Park Service tried to remove mentions that climate change is caused by people. National Park Service study on climate change is released uncensored. What are the odds? All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. So here's part of what CNN said today in a statement. The EPA selectively excluded CNN and other media outlets. We understand the importance of an open and free press, and we hope the EPA does too. Keep hoping. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, a couple of stories that we are tracking here. Lava from Hawaii's Kilauea volcano is now edging closer to a geothermal plant? Yes, that geothermal plant generates electricity from the Earth's heat, and it provides about a quarter of the Big Island's electricity. Plant officials say they've now taken all precautions that they know to take. However, on the bright side... At least we're not talking about a nuclear power plant. Well, there's that. Uh, Another story we're also watching, another orange flow, if you will, is now being watched in Wisconsin, where 10 million gallons of sludge from a fracking settling pond was released after a worker got trapped in the pond. The sludge has turned the nearby Trempolo River orange. That sludge has now reached the Mississippi, and the fracking water is laced with chemicals, apparently. Officials are now trying to determine the full extent of the damage and the danger to humans, to plants, to wildlife in the river. I'm sure Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker will be straightforward with us on that. (laughs) Just another great byproduct of fossil fuels, Des. Yep. Well, with that good news, what else do you have for us today? Well, in Washington, the Trump Environmental Protection Agency got even more Orwellian this week when agency security blocked reporters from some major news outlets like AP and CNN from attending a two-day public summit on 
and water contamination at EPA headquarters. Agency officials claimed there wasn't enough room to accommodate those journalists, despite reports and photos of empty seats inside the meeting. Also excluded were city officials from Flint, Michigan, and the independent scientists who studied the chemical's impact on human health. According to Politico, the EPA's lockout of the press may violate public meeting access requirements under the Federal Advisory Committee Act. This is incredibly chilling. People need to pay attention to what this administration is doing when it comes to a free press in this country. The shutout of some of those media outlets from that water contamination summit comes on the heels of revelations that the Trump administration is blocking the release of a federal study showing that dangerous toxic chemicals found in water supplies across the country are far more harmful at far lower levels than previously known. The emails showed the White House and EPA withheld that water study because they feared it would be, quote, a public relations nightmare. That study remains unreleased. Meanwhile, the U.S. Chemical Safety Board is investigating yet another chemical plant explosion. This one near Houston, Texas on Monday that was caused by a pressure safety valve failure. It sparked a chemical fire at the Cura Ray America Incorporated plant. It injured 21 workers, some quite seriously. That latest explosion comes just days after EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt moved to formally rescind chemical safety regulations that were put in place by the Obama administration after the deadly West Texas fertilizer plant explosion that killed 15 people in 2013. In a statement, Pruitt claimed that, quote, accident prevention is a top priority at EPA. But he said that repeal would save the chemical industry over $88 million a year. West's mayor, however, told the Austin American statesman, quote, with all due respect to Scott Pruitt, he's never lost 15 firefighter friends. But some good news, a National Park Service study showing how rising sea levels will impact national parks has been allowed to see the light of day uncensored. The Park Service came under intense scrutiny after news reports revealed that all mentions of climate change had been deleted from draft versions. The climate data has now been restored to the final publication. But it came at great cost to University of Colorado scientist Maria Caffrey, who worked on the report for five years and fought those changes. She said, quote, the fight probably destroyed my career with the Park Service, but it will be worth it if we can hold up the truth and ensure scientific integrity. Finally, some very good news. A new study on air pollution has found that shutting down fossil fuel power plants delivers almost immediate benefits for pregnant mothers and their babies. The study found that within a year after the shutdown of eight coal and oil-fired power plants in California, rates of premature birth dropped significantly among pregnant mothers living near those plants. Shutting down power plants that burn fossil fuels almost immediately reduces the risk of preterm birth, which is linked to lifelong health complications. For much more on all of those reports and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Trying to. (laughs) Trying to. Yeah, another good reason to clean up air pollution. Chocked full of news, as I promised on uh, that today's Green News Report. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. And because we're heading out for the long holiday weekend and I don't want to leave everyone... Uh, that's a tr- troubling report, All yes. everything in that Green News Report. So yeah. we'll lighten it up a little bit, sort of, with this from the Palm Beach Post. The city of Lake Worth, Florida 
sent out a false alert to residents during a power outage on Sunday. The Palm Beach Post reports that the message was sent around 1.45 a.m. on Sunday and read, quote, zombie alert for Lake Worth and Terminus. <laughs> what? Terminus is uh, is the city in the uh, zombie TV show The Walking Dead. Oh. That's Terminus. Oh, right. Uh, but Lake Worth is real. The alert continued, quote, There are now far less than 7,383 customers involved due to extreme zombie activity. <laughs> the alert read. <laughs> okay. Uh, the city's public information officer, Ben Kerr, said in a statement that they're looking into how zombies were mentioned in the report meant to let folks know about a power outage. He said, quote, I want to reiterate that Lake Worth does not have any zombie activity currently. And we apologize for the system message. <laughs> oh, my Apparently goodness. power was out for about uh, 7,800 customers, according to Kerr. Uh, officials believe it was a hack. The part about the zombies. Well, that's usually the excuse, yeah. Care, Care says uh, an independent investigation is now underway to decide uh, to determine who was behind the message. So far, no one has been fired. They think it was a hack from somewhere out there, from it outside. Could have just been a rogue employee with a sense of humor. Care uh, said that uh, those messages are pre-prepared. There's literally thousands of them ready to go. He said at some point some edits were made, and that's what you saw. He says someone edited it with a zombie invasion going on. <laughs> That's great. I mean, not great, of course, but that's still great. <laughs> <laughs> it's still, yeah, it's kind of great. <laughs> Uh, whoever uh, hacked the zombies. Uh, th that embarrassment, USA Today notes, uh, follows a more alarming incident in January in which a warning, you'll recall, about an imminent ballistic missile threat was sent in error to residents of Hawaii uh, who have enough to worry about with the volcano going on. And now, of course, now that we're back on, I guess, seemingly nuclear footing once again with North Korea... Uh, so it's it's swell to know how easily uh, these kind of mistakes, errors, hacks can happen. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> At least we know there are no zombies. At least in Lake Worth, Florida. Good news. There's that. So we end that as we head off uh, to our long holiday weekend. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Thank you, Des. To my guest today, University of Kentucky uh, constitutional law professor Joshua A. Douglas. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com on the Facebooks and the Twitters where, really, I won't block you. I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks as ever to those who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us remain on your public airwaves come hell or high water or zombies. That's bradblog.com slash donate. We rely on only you to stay on your public airwaves. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh.